seven years after the 9-11 terrorist attacks, the United States spent $260 billion, billion with a B, on counterterrorism. Now, to, get, to give a little bit of perspective there, if you're to take every single resident of Indianapolis, a little less than 900,000 people, and hire them based on that counterterrorism budget, you could pay everybody 300 grand a year. That to say, $260 billion is a lot of dollars. It's a really big number. It's hard to wrap our mind around how big $260 billion is. And the reason we spend so much money on counterterrorism is because it's a remarkably valuable investment. We think it's worth it. What's the job of these counterterrorism departments? It's to figure out what's coming next and to develop an action plan around what we just discovered is coming. It's not not exactly an advanced military concept. This has been happening for centuries or millennia. If you know something's coming, you can make a change on the basis of that knowledge you've gained. And if we pivot to to Genesis 18, there's a little bit of a, a similar story going on here. God graciously reveals to Abraham, not a terrorist attack, but divine judgment that is justly, rightly coming. And it's merciful of God to reveal and say, here's what's coming. I'm going to tell you what's going to happen so that you can make a change. You see, this this bad thing is about to come. My judgment is about to come. And I'm going to tell you in advance so that you can make a change. So if we were to take Genesis 18, at least the second half of it, verses 16 to 33 that Sarah just read, kind of boil it down to a single summary sentence, here's what we'd say. We'd say that God mercifully reveals his justice to bring us to righteousness. It's merciful of him to reveal his justice and it will bring us to righteousness. So so this morning we have a a pretty simple outline. I like simple outlines, two points. The first one is got the mercy of justice revealed and the, the second point is the righteousness from justice revealed. So the mercy of justice revealed and then secondly the righteousness from justice revealed. So we'll start with with the first one, the the mercy of justice revealed. Look back at your copy of God's Word with me. If you're not familiar with that, I'd invite you just to keep God's Word open in front of you. Throughout the sermon, we'll be regularly going back to it. Look at verse 17. We read, the Lord said, shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do? Shall I hide? No, I'm going to reveal to Abraham what I'm about to do. He reveals that he's going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah for their wickedness. And and just know this at the outset. God is under absolutely no obligation to reveal his plans to Abraham or to us in this way. But he mercifully does choose to reveal them. He didn't have to, but out of his mercy, he does. And you say, Justin, how can it be God's mercy to tell us of impending doom and judgment? How can that be? Because it allows for change before it's too late. It hasn't happened yet. I'm telling you what's coming so that you can have a change of action here. Guys, you see, this, this merciful heart is at the heart of who God is. And in Genesis 18, we sort of see in narrative form what you see being taught all over the Bible of God's character that he loves to show mercy. Even in his justice, he's seeking to show mercy. Yes, he will judge sin. He'll not overlook sin, but he loves to show mercy. 
Let me give you a couple of examples here. Exodus 34, verses 6 and 7. It was our, our call to worship this morning. We'll go back to it and let you see it on the screen. This is God and Moses interacting here. It says, the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. What's the point there? He's comparing to say, yes, I will judge sin, but I love to show mercy. I am slow to anger. I am abounding in steadfast love. I'm not gonna wink at sin. I'm not gonna look past it. But I love to show mercy. That's what I love to do. Or, or Lamentations 3, verse 33, he says this. He does not afflict from his heart or grieve the children of man. What's he saying? Yes, God may afflict us for a time, but it's not from his heart. It's not what he loves to do the most. He loves to show mercy. Do you know there's only one characteristic of God, one attribute of God in the whole Bible that we're told he's rich in? Do you know what it is? Ephesians 2.4, but God being rich in mercy. He loves to show mercy. It's like if, if you're, uh, you're washing your hands and are uh, Maybe not washing your hands. You get out of the shower and there's that little, you, there's the, the wash rag right there. And if you squeeze that, water naturally comes out of it. It's just filled up with water. You squeeze it, it just pours right out. Right? We, sometimes we're going to tend to view God not like a wash rag with water in it, but like if you squeeze God, like anger would pour out of him. What, what are you, these people doing? What's the world doing? You squeeze God, what comes out? Mercy. He's rich in mercy. He loves to show mercy. And it's hard for us to comprehend this in, in many ways because we know ourselves. We know that we're short-fused. We know that we're quick-triggered. And, and too often we sort of project ourselves onto God. And I figure, yes, his fuse must be so much longer than mine, but it basically functions in the same way. We have to allow the scriptures to correct our thinking here. No, God is rich in mercy. He loves to show mercy. And we have to ask ourselves, do I live in light of this truth? Friend, do you live in light of the truth that God is rich in mercy? Is that how you see yourself? That despite who you are, despite what you've done, or whatever you have to offer this world, he made you and he loves to show mercy to you. But to, to the person who feels worthless, or to the person who feels like you wouldn't be missed. He loves you. He loves to show mercy to you. And when the God of the universe shows you mercy, he declares you are immensely valuable, worthy of my mercy, because I've made you in my image. So friends, do, do you love to see others in view of God's mercy? Maybe you know somebody who is anxious about all sorts of things, some of them real, some of them not. Maybe you get frustrated with that person for being so anxious all the time. Quit worrying about that, you might say. Or, or, or maybe you know one of those people who just seems to always be offensive no matter what. You know one of those people? Yeah. God loves to show them mercy. And what's really good news is he loves to show you mercy too, even as you're quick to pass judgment on them. 
Do you view others in light of God's riches of mercy? Maybe we zoom out a little bit and say, do you view the world around you in view of God's richness in mercy? You say, say, Pastor, don't you see the world around us? <laughs> don't you see everything going on? The world needs to be condemned. The world doesn't need mercy. I say, friend, to show mercy is not to affirm godless ideas or behavior. No. I'm just going to ask, do you love to show mercy like God loves to show mercy? Romans 2.4 says it's God's kindness that leads us to repentance. It's not a rod where he beats us into repentance. He's not slapping us all the way to repentance. No, it's his kindness that leads us to repentance. John chapter 3, you probably know verse 16 but if we would keep reading to verse 17, we see, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order to save the world. They could be saved, there could be mercy. And so what God does here in Genesis 18 is in his mercy, he reveals the justice that's to come, the judgments that's to come, so that some may be saved, so that the action can be changed, so they can repent and trust in him instead of going their own way. There is a question that Abraham brings up here in Genesis 18. It sort of is a, a base that we've left uncovered thus far to say, is this judgment truly just? Yes, Justin, you've said the mercy of justice revealed, but is the justice actually just? Look at verse 23 back in Genesis 18. This is the heart of Abraham's question. He says, will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? In other words, God, I see the judgment that's coming, but is it just, is it right to sweep away the righteous with the wicked? God, you're only kind if you are just. You're only merciful if you're just. It would be just to punish Russia for what they've done recently. It would not be merciful, it would not be kind, it would not be just to punish Ukraine. You see what Abraham is, is getting out here. And what, what God does is he goes way out of his way to prove to Abraham, to show to Abraham, yes, I really am just. Look at verses 20 and 21 of Genesis 18. Here's what we read. The Lord said, because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great, and their sin is very grave, I will go down to see whether they've done altogether according to the outcry that has come to me. And if not, I will know. God says, I'm, I'm gonna go down and see. Guys, God knows everything. He didn't have to go down and see because he was lacking in knowledge. He wasn't going on an investigation for his own sake. He already knew everything that was happening there. Why does he do this? To show to Abraham, yes, I'm trustworthy. And yes, I'm just. And if I bring my judgment, there is a good reason. And you may know it, Abraham. You may not know it, but you can trust me. This language of, of going down to see is what we call an anthropomorphism. It's a $2.50 term. See the, the technical definition there, the interpretation of non-human things in terms of human characteristics. Justin, that's a mouthful too. What, can you simplify it? Sure, attributing human characteristics to God. We go down to figure something out, and he says, I'm gonna go see what's there. Not because I need to know, but because I'm showing you that you can trust me. I'm really just. 
See, the outcry of, of Sodom was, was great. The whole earth, in a sense, was, was crying out with their injustice, with their sin. And we're reminded there's an echo here of Genesis 4, where Cain had killed Abel, and Abel's blood cried out from the ground, we're told, for justice. Where there's sin against God, there's an outcry. This isn't right. It's not supposed to be this way. Certainly there were people in Sodom, people in Gomorrah, being oppressed by this wickedness in all sorts of ways. In the the first half of Genesis 18, what we saw last week, God was provoked by Sarah laughing at him. Is anything too hard for the Lord? And she thought perhaps something was. And here in the second half, we see God being provoked by this wickedness in Sodom and Gomorrah. Abraham certainly sees that the wicked will be judged. And we start to ask ourselves, what was this wickedness that the Lord went down to see? Well, without a doubt, there was immense sexual perversion in Sodom and Gomorrah. I don't want to jump ahead too much. Next week, Genesis 19, we'll see more of that. But it was, it was cities marked by rampant sexual immorality. But it wasn't only that. Ezekiel chapter 16 gives us a fuller picture seeing the whole of this wickedness in Sodom and in Gomorrah. Ezekiel 16 verses 49 and 50 on the screen you see, Behold, this was the guilt of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters had pride, excess of food, and prosperous ease, but did not aid the poor and needy. They were haughty and did an abomination before me, so I removed them when I saw it. So yes, there's immense sexual perversion there, but it's also arrogant cities, cities that had materially prospered. They were wealthy, and they said, I'm not going to help the poor and needy here. I don't need to. I'm going to spend it on myself. And God said, I hate that as well. And I think it's interesting to see the whole picture the scriptures give us, because in in the modern Christian world, can't you think of certain tribes that say, man, we are going to be all about talking on these Genesis 19 sexual sins, condemning them, going on and on, and rightly calling sin, sin. And oftentimes those tribes sort of cast a blind eye, or at least overlook some of these Ezekiel 16 sins. To say, well, pride, yeah, that's a big deal, but not as big a deal as those sins. Yes, seeing those that are poor and in need, that's a big deal. Should we meet those needs? Yeah, we should try, but it's not as big a deal as those. Right, and you see this back and forth, and what God is saying is there are massive sins in Sodom and Gomorrah, and it's so easy for us to think about some of the sins as more significant than others, and he's saying, no, they're all an offense to me. We'd be wise to look inward and say, which of these sins, the the Genesis 19 variety or the Ezekiel 16 variety, am I more likely to sort of overlook and say are less significant? To give myself a pass on. Take the whole counsel of God and apply it to our lives. Not just the passages that are more comfortable for us. So friend, I ask you, which of these sins are you more prone to overlook in your life? Which of these sins are you less likely to confront in those around you? Not actively saying they're not that big of a deal, but by your actions communicating, "Eh, it's actually not as big of a deal. I wonder if God, this morning, in his mercy, is opening your eyes to a blind spot 
You say, I've not considered offense against him in this way as I ought to. I've overlooked it in some way. And you this morning are experiencing the mercy of God revealing his justice to say all of these matter. The first point of Genesis 18 is there's a mercy in God revealing his justice while there's still time to repent and change and turn back to him. But it's not merely the mercy of God's justice being revealed. No, it's supposed to lead us to a change. That's the second point, the righteousness from God's justice revealed. Yes, it's it's a mercy that he reveals his justice, but secondly, there's a righteousness from his justice that is revealed. If we were to return to our counter-terrorism example that that I opened with, the point of discovering the upcoming attacks is to change your behavior so as to avoid them. Same thing here. You see the judgment of God that's coming, the justice of God that's coming in time that you can make a change. Look back at verse 19, and we start to see what God has laid out. What is the righteousness that's meant to come from this revealing of his justice? Verse 19, we read, God speaks, For I have chosen him that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised him. Here's the first righteous action that's meant to come from God's justice being revealed is this. Faithful instruction of children, of the next generation. So what God clearly says there in verse 19. Faithful instruction of children. Parents, grandparents, you absolutely cannot miss this. Don't overlook, this is the first righteous action that God is calling you to. And beyond the the family comes the church family. And we are so blessed here at Parkside to have a remarkable team in our children's ministry. Some people who have kids in the home, some who don't have kids in the home, but all of them seeing the incredible value of teaching the next generation who God is and how one can be saved. These people recognize They recognize that God has revealed that his justice will be poured out on the earth. And aside from someone teaching the next generation, they too will be swept away. Parents, your first mission field is your home. It's not your only mission field, but it's your first one. So it's important that we think about this, that we we teach with our words and we model with our actions. That we use our words and our deeds to communicate these things. We recognize that some is taught, but more is caught. Or just to put it really simply, that your actions speak louder than your words. So what are these things that that we need to be faithfully instructing both in word and in deed to our kids, to the next generation? Well, to start off the transforming power of the word of God, right? Yes, your kids should know, you should be teaching them 2 Timothy 3.16 that all scripture is God-breathed, is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. I hope your kids know that verse, but they should also see, even if they don't know that verse, that when I wake up in the morning, I'm going to see mom and dad, grandma, grandpa reading their Bible in the recliner because that's what they do every morning. Those actions teach that verse. You should be teaching your kids the joy of generously giving to God's kingdom. 2 Corinthians 9, 7, you might teach them God loves a cheerful giver. And you should teach them there are times that you don't give cheerfully. Your pastor doesn't always give cheerfully. He wants to, but it's not always there. 
And so what do you say? You say, kids, here's the deal. God says he loves a cheerful giver, and so I'm going to ask God to change my heart as I'm giving this offering. I'm going to involve my kids in that. I think that's one of the difficulties of online giving, is it not? You go back in the day where you're passing the plate, there's sort of a, a, a catechism of sorts through our actions of bringing kids into this is a, a, a culture of generosity here. So we gotta work a little harder now. How do we involve kids in that? How do we involve kids in the fall offering of teaching them, hey, we don't wanna be like Sodom and Gomorrah who had prosperous ease and wouldn't help those in need. So how do we together as a family prioritize generosity? Teach your kids the importance of gathering together as the church. Hebrews 10, 24, 25, great quick passage to teach them. Don't forsake the assembling of yourselves together, as is the habit of some, but encourage one another. What's the opposite of not gathering? Encouraging. That's why we gather. So you should teach your kids. Yeah, we come to church, yes, to worship God, yes, to learn about him, but to encourage others. I had a friend of mine who had a simple little phrase that they embraced as a family. Here's what they said. Any alone person is an emergency. Any alone person is an emergency. And I see somebody alone, I'm seeking them out. So that it is nearly impossible to be an anonymous person in God's church. Oh, there will be more people who simply live that out and say, yes, I'm going to gather to worship and to learn, but to see someone who needs a hug. I would love to see a church who's characterized by before and after the service more bear hugs, just real, deep, life-sharing hugs, recognizing that alone people are emergencies. But most importantly, I mean, we, we could go on and on and on. Of all kinds of ways, we faithfully instruct the next generation. But most importantly, above all, our kids need to hear the need for repentance and faith. That being at church isn't enough, that a head knowledge isn't enough. We must not assume the gospel at any point. We must not give kids an assurance of faith before their lives show evidence of being regenerated, of being born again. I don't know how many times I, I hear and it grieves me to say, oh, you're saved. You remember when you prayed that prayer? Stop it. If they don't remember when they prayed the prayer, if their wife hasn't shown the, the fruit of righteousness, they're probably not saved. We must not tell kids they're Christians simply because they know theological truths. They must know that repentance and faith is required. That's how one can be born again. Parents, this is so important. The righteousness that comes from God's justice being revealed is that we faithfully teach the next generation. I'm reminded of one of my, my favorite war movies, the about four and a half hour tale, Gettysburg. And right in the middle of that, in day two, there's Lieutenant Colonel Joshua Chamberlain. Can, can I see a show of hands? How many people know of Lieutenant Colonel Joshua Chamberlain when I reference him? A few. All right, so we have some repentance here. We need to watch this movie, Gettysburg. All right, so I'll tell you what happens. Second day of, of the Battle of Gettysburg, there's a hill called Little Round Top, and, uh, and this is the end of the Union Army's line. And of course, the, the high ground matters, and so the Confederate Army's trying to get around, and Lieutenant Colonel Chamberlain is, is at the edge of the line, and when he stands before his men to say, here's what's going on, he says to them, he's, men, we are the end of the line. The Union Army stops 
here. He puts his foot in the ground, right here. We cannot retreat. We cannot withdraw, he says. It's a powerful moment that the soundtrack's kind of going, building the suspense, right? I say to you, parents, this is where you're at. You cannot retreat. You cannot withdraw. You must engage and teach your kids what God requires of them. There's no other way for this to happen. And I wonder if, as you hear this, you're thinking, Justin, I have retreated in some ways. I have withdrawn in some ways. What am I supposed to do now? You model the very thing you're asking your kids to do. You repent of your sins, you go to God and talk to him, and you go to them and say, guys, I've dropped the ball here. You've had to wonder if we're coming to church on Sunday. You shouldn't have to wonder that. I want you to forgive me and we're gonna make a change. See, guys, you, you know that I don't read the Bible very often. You, you know that I get angry really quickly. That's not right. And I want to be someone who's being changed by God's mercy. I'm going to ask your forgiveness, and we're going to work at it together. You don't pretend that all of a sudden you have it all together. None of us do. But you go to him and say, I need God's mercy, and you need God's mercy, and we're going to lock arms, and we're going to follow Jesus together. That's what it looks like. First, fruit of righteousness. The righteousness that comes from God's justice being revealed is that we faithfully instruct the next generation. But there's a second one that's listed in our passage, and it's this. It's faith-filled prayer. Faith-filled prayer. Prayer is certainly a major part of Genesis 18. I don't think it's the central point, but it is a important point, verse 27, if you look back at your copy of God's word with me, Genesis 18 and verse 27, here's what we read. Abraham, Abraham answered and said, behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord, I who am but dust and ashes. First part of a faith-filled prayer for all of us is a humble prayer that recognizes who am I speaking to? I'm speaking to the God of the universe, the Lord of all, the judge of all the earth, verse 27, I think, or 25 would say. And it also recognizes who I am. Abraham says, I'm but dust and ashes. Building on Genesis 1 and 2, that out of the dust of the earth, God made Adam. You're the creator, I'm the creature, and yet I humbly come to you with a bold and audacious request. He started asking God, will you spare the city for 50 people? And I don't know that it's really meant to be a guide in how we pray, that you know, a, a union-style negotiation is what we're supposed to get at when we pray here, but it is a bold request. We're to pray boldly, we know. Scholars that have speculated, you know, they, they whittle it down to 10. There's Lot and his wife, and two daughters, three, four, and two sons-in-law, or at least soon-to-be sons-in-law. There's six right there, perhaps, he's thinking of. There's some other archaeological data that says maybe he had two other daughters, so he's up to eight, eight, thinking, if only God, you'll spare it for 10. Certainly there's got to be two other people. I mean, we're speculating a little bit. I don't, I don't know what exactly was going on, but catch what he prays for. He doesn't merely ask the righteous to be spared. That's what, wouldn't that seem like the logical prayer? Like, God, we, there's righteous people there. Don't destroy them because everybody else is wicked. I feel like that's what we would ask for. Like, God, have, have, have mercy on the believers in Afghanistan or in Ukraine 
or wherever else. But look at verse 24 and pay careful attention to what is the request. Suppose there are 50 righteous within the city. Will you then sweep away the place and not spare it for the 50 righteous who are in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked so that the righteous fare as the wicked. Far be that from you. Shall the judge of all the earth do what is just? Did you hear what Abraham asked of the Lord? He didn't ask merely for the righteous to be spared. He asked for the whole place to be spared. Now that's a bold request. He's asking for serious mercy from God. Not just a little bit of mercy on the side. It's not like mercy's the salad dressing here. Mercy's the steak. Saying, God, abundantly pour out your mercy here. And he's persistent and direct in his prayer. As I read that, my mind goes to Luke 18, the parable of the persistent widow, where the widow beats on the door of the unjust judge over and over and over. And finally, the unjust judge says, I don't care two hoots for your justice, but because you're annoying me, I'm going to give in. And at the conclusion of that parable, Jesus says, of course I'm just, and I will always do what's just unlike this judge in Luke 18, but will I find anybody who's persistent when I come back to earth? Will I find anybody marked by faith-filled prayer that continues to come to me, boldly asking, saying, God, I know that you will work. Ephesians 3.20, I know that you want to do more than anything I could ever ask or think. Will I find that, he's asking. And Abraham's a model for us in saying, here's what our prayers ought to look like. Friend, I wonder if you reflect on your prayers of the last week or month if they've become somewhat rote. Yes, you, you do technically pray, but it's for safe stuff. And nothing risky, nothing bold. You're asking for safe travel, help in an interview, or maybe an upcoming test. But can we just be honest for a moment? If your boldest prayer in the last week was for God to bless the chicken nuggets before you ate them, that's a problem. Like, I still don't even know what it means for him to bless the chicken nuggets to my body. <laughs> I, I don't, I, I, if you know, please tell me. Because I'm very confused on what that means. No, that's not a faith-filled prayer. Is it good to be grateful for our food? Yes, we should absolutely be grateful for all good things that God gives us. I don't mean to disparage that in any way, shape, or form. But faith-filled prayer prays big prayers to the God of the universe. It pleads with God for our unsaved neighbor to believe the gospel. It pleads like that persistent widow. And it sees the reasons they won't believe their hardness of heart, how they've been hurt by the church. But it has faith that God will act and save sinners like he saved you. Faith-filled prayer prays for a transformed life. It prays believing that he can do anything more than you ask or think, including changing you. And you can, you can look and say, man, Justin, I know that I'm an Enneagram whatever you are, and it's gonna be tough for me to overcome this sin. Or I'm a Myers-Briggs this or a disc that. And God is saying, I don't care about your personality test. I'm making all things new. There's no temptation that's overtaken you except that which is common to man. And God is faithful. He'll provide a way out. You can stand up under it. Pray a faith-filled prayer that he'll make you new. 
faith-filled prayers, pray, pleading with God for reconciliation of relationships that seem totally beyond repair, totally beyond hope. It believes that if God can reconcile sinners to himself, the holy judge of all the universe, surely he can reconcile two sinners together. And of course, in the eyes of the flesh, what I see in front of me, I don't see how that's possible. It's difficult to pray faith-filled prayers. But I'm standing on the promises of God, not what I can see with my eyes and manipulate with my hands. Friends, God's revelation of impending judgment that he showed to Abraham and then the rest of his word he's shown to us, it must drive us to faith-filled prayers. If you want to go look this up this afternoon, 2 Peter 2, verses 4 through 9, walks through all the things that God has done. If he can do this and this and this and this and this and this. You get to about verse 7 and it says, then surely he can deliver you from your trials. One of the things he builds on here is Genesis 18. There's a righteousness in our life of instructing the next generation, praying faith-filled prayers that is meant to flow out of God's justice being revealed. And there's one final thing, one final thing I want to wrap up with and kind of show you this in Genesis 18. There's a, a salvation echo of sorts. There's a redemption echo here in Genesis 18. Abraham, Abraham prays that God would spare the wicked because of the righteous. And it's a foreshadowing of ways where thousands of years later, this is exactly what would happen when God would send his only son, Jesus, the righteous one, so that because of the righteous, the wicked could be spared. Except when Jesus came, there still weren't 10 righteous ones, just like there weren't 10 righteous ones in Sodom. The only truly righteous one, Jesus would come and he would bring mercy to the many. Because of Jesus, the righteous one, you know what would happen to the wicked? They would be spared, but not all of the wicked. It's different than Genesis 18 in that way. No, only those who would place their faith and trust in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins. On the cross, what did Jesus do? He truly revealed his justice. Not merely a promise of what would come, but justice was poured out. He didn't just warn of it, it actually came by judging sin so that both mercy and righteousness could be extended to you. Mercy, so that you wouldn't face the consequences for your sin. And righteousness, so that Jesus' perfect life would be credited to your bank account. If I use that, that banking terminology, it's as if before Jesus' death, we all had a debt of sin. And mercy being extended means the debt is canceled. You're now at zero dollars. I'm not in the hole anymore. That's great news. But it actually gets much better. That The wealth of his righteousness is applied to your account by faith. If you'll trust in his death where God's justice is revealed so you can receive both mercy, you don't have a debt, and righteousness, you have a wealth of righteousness there. As Ray Ortland has said, God gives his best to those who deserve his worst. He mercifully reveals his justice on the cross to bring us to righteousness. That's good news. So as we get ready for communion, we're, we're, we'll go there in a minute, and I just want you to, to meditate on 
cross where Jesus is there, God's justice being poured out so that you can receive mercy and righteousness. And ask yourself, where am I not living in light of his mercy and where am I not living in light of the righteous requirement that comes from it?